Welcome back as we continue our Old Testament survey class. I'm going to open us in prayer, ask for God's blessing on our time, learning from his word, and then go from there. Father God in heaven, we thank you uh, once again as we gather in the name of Christ, our Savior, that you have made us a people. We who were not a people have become the people of God by your mercy. And we who were sinners, we who had wandered like sheep far away from you, have now become the sheep of your pasture. And you feed us and you lead us and you protect us primarily by means of your written word and by the power of your spirit working in our hearts through this word. And so thank you for the opportunity to gather and study the Old Testament, study some books of the Old Testament today. We confess our great need of you, that your spirit would work in me as the speaker to be uh, clear and faithful and wise in my speech and for all of us to be humble and alert in mind so that we can be formed by you, so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ, so we can see your glory and be once again amazed at the God that you are and what you've done in salvation and what you have yet to do in the return of Christ. So please uh, work in our lives through your word. Stimulate us all to love these books and to to plunder them ourselves um, and be glorified in us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are Back to our Old Testament survey class, and um, we're going to start a section of the Old Testament that's called uh, the Minor Prophets. Um, this is the last 12 books of the Old Testament uh, from, from Hosea uh, to, uh, to Malachi. Um, does anybody, and it's okay if you don't have an answer to this question, I don't necessarily expect that everyone has an answer to this question, but uh, does anybody have a favorite Minor Prophet? Some of you are like, I've maybe read them all. That's okay, too. Does anyone have a favorite minor or just one of the books they particularly, it stands out to them? Jonah. Yeah, so some of you may not even have connected it. Jonah's maybe the most famous book of the Minor Prophets. It's one of the Bible stories all the, all the kids learn. It's a wonderful story. Um, not just a story, but it's, it says something about God and his redeeming uh, plans. Yeah, Jonah's a good one. Most memorable. Any others? It's, I remember, Matt, you've, you've made the joke in the past about this is a part of the Bible is that where the pages may stick together when we turn there. Um, so, so some of us, maybe it's a less frequented. That's the beauty of a survey. We have to cover everything. And what we find is as we give due attention to each part of the Bible, we find something rich about what God's given us there. And I hope that that happens. Any other thoughts about the Minor Prophets, something that you've enjoyed? or it's the, Hosea? Well, we're going to talk about it today. So is there anything, Seth, in particular that you like about Hosea? Yeah, the imagery is very poignant. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, we're going to find out about how God gives this picture of, of idolatry as spiritual ad- adultery in a very vivid, disturbing way, quite honestly, but, but very important. Yeah. Um, so we're going to spend four lessons, the last four lessons of the series, in the 12 books of the Minor Prophets. I want to give a brief introduction to these 12 books as a whole before we look at the first three. There will be three each time. So today is Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Um, so, so far we've worked through the, what are so, so-called major prophets, um, which are in the English Bible, it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, because it piggybacks off of Jeremiah. It's kind of presumed to be Je- Jeremiah's the author. And then Daniel. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, Daniel is kind of a funny footnote. Daniel is actually not considered to be a prophet in the Hebrew Bible. Um, he's categorized differently. Probably, I don't know exactly, but probably because he just kind of saw visions and reported them. He was more of just like 
an eyewitness reporter of, of heavenly visions, whereas prophets, maybe they were more influenced in their intellect by God. Anyway, it's kind of an inside baseball thing. But at any rate, um, whether it's kind of the original Hebrew Bible or our English, there's sort of this last section of the prophets that we call the minor prophets. Traditionally, they'd be called the Twelve. The, t- the title in the old kind of Hebrew and the old Greek Bible it was called the Twelve. And they were often bound together. Um, they, were, they were bound together and almost like it was one book, although the order always kind of varied. So it, we can't say that it was always meant to be one book because there's a variety of orders between these 12. But maybe a, a good way to think about it is that um, it's sort of a grouping of books that are sort of, there's kind of a cohesion between them. Uh, not to be considered one book, but sort of a tight group of books. Kind of like maybe in our Bible we have other groups like uh, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. We would say that's sort of a, a grouping of a natural grouping of books that sort of need to be read together in a special way. Uh, the Gospels is another one like that, or the pastoral epistles. So maybe the twelve are best thought of that way. Um, there is some some diversity. So I'm talking about common themes between them. Uh, there's a lot of diversity between these twelve books. Uh, there's diversity in their audience. Some of them are speaking to the north, northern kingdom of Israel. Some are dealing with Judah in the south. There's diversity of time, potentially spanning from um, the, the, maybe the 9th century B.C., probably the 8th century B.C., all the way to the 5th century B.C., pre- to post-exile. If you're familiar with the Old Testament storyline, that exile is a big watershed for kind of the history of Israel. Uh, the minor prophets span bef- from before to after. Um, and subject matter. Uh, there's, there's some kind of key commonalities in, in and kind of commonplaces in their subject matter, but there's also diversity. We talked about Jonah. Jonah's a narrative. Um, it's probably the most narrative of the minor prophets. Usually prophetic, we've talked about prophetic books as a genre. It's more poetic, um, and, and it's usually the Lord giving the prophet a message largely about what's going on in among his people uh, now. So it's often like a prosecuting attorney uh, tell, telling them how they're failing the covenant, but also there's... Uh, there's um, Future prediction, that's another thing that's going on in prophecy. But there's some narrative. Noah's, I mean, uh, not Noah, Jonah. <laughs> there's, there's water there, but it's different. Jonah, uh, Jonah is, is a narrative, uh, but it's also a prophetic book. Um, but I want to point out three broad motifs that kind of tie the, the, the minor prophets together, more or less. The first is there's a clear background of the Old Covenant the, and the law in particular. Um, and to get even more particular, the, the covenant blessing and cursing passages out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Now, way back in the first half of Old Testament when we covered these books, we talked about how Deuteronomy kind of ends. They're about to go into the land, and God has laid out the law again for the second generation in the wilderness. And he lays it out like, okay, y'all. This is the choice before you. If you obey me, if you keep my covenant, there's like 11 verses of like, it's going to be great. You're going to have a lot of babies. Your cows are going to have a lot of babies. You'll have a lot of rain. You'll have a lot of yields in your crops. It'll be awesome. Your enemies will flee when you go to battle against them. And then he has like 68 verses or something about, if you don't obey me and if you don't keep my covenant, and it's equally bleak and and it's, it's equally opposite, really ugly and bleak. And it basically is a history of Israel in the land. It's kind of prophetic because it does happen that way. They, sadly, they choose Dor B, as we come to find out throughout their history. And God curses their, their 
um, their progeny and their livestock and their crops, and, and he brings uh, famine and pestilence and enemies and, and exile. I mean, he talks, it goes about the exile and everything. It's very detailed. So that is in the background. We need to understand that because, again, the prophets are often coming to the people going, remember this blessing and curse kind of uh, choice that God gave us? Well, we're, we're going the curse direction. And so that's often sort of the, 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 the terminology and the sort of structure of thought that underlies what the prophets are saying to the people. And then often when they are promising the Lord, the Lord's future work of restoration, they describe it in terms of that first side of the ledger. Like uh, they, they describe it in like agricultural terms. Like, oh, you'll have plenty. You'll have, it's sort of like you'll, you'll, you'll be put back on the track of what the law kind of offered you, which was the blessings of obedience. Um, so it's just important as we read these books to, to, to know those kinds of images and those, the, the, the background of those covenant blessings and curses because it is very much. And then, of course, the law. So often what the prophets are coming um, against the people with is the ways they've broken the law. It's always good to know the Ten Commandments. That's kind of the summary of the law. What, what is, you know, often it's idolatry or having other gods, the first two commandments. And then there's the commandments about people, the second table of the law, uh, murder, oppression, theft, all these kinds of things are often coming up in the prophets. So to know the covenant blessings and curses, to know the Ten Commandments, that's kind of essential background knowledge as we read the prophets and what, what God is telling his people through them. So that's the first kind of common theme. The second is that there's this phrase, there's this concept that comes up a lot. It comes up in almost all the minor prophets, not all of them, but the day of the Lord. This concept of the day of the Lord. And it's, it's essentially, um, the minor prophets are, are, are ministering in the shadow of destructive powers to come. Um, and God's judgment that will come at the hand of enemy powers. And usually what's happening is there's near-term conquest and disaster that's being pointed to. But they're always, they have an eye going farther out and saying, this is showing us something about the big one, the day of the Lord to come. So there's this kind of, there's this kind of sensitive relationship between what's happening now in history or what might happen right now if you don't repent, and the big picture, kind of later on, the big judgment of all things, the day of the Lord. That's, that's what the day of the Lord, it's like this future day of reckoning that God will bring. Um, it's a day of of reward for the righteous. It's a day of uh, destruction and judgment for the wicked. Um, so, so often that, that's an important relationship to, to, to think through that, that the historical events, the local and historical events are pointing to universal and ultimate acts of salvation and judgment. So just to have those categories in mind as we read the minor prophets. We're going to especially see that today with Joel. The book of Joel really plays on this sort of what's happening now here is pointing us forward to what's going to happen to come. And the third big theme is the, um, the, that the coming day of the Lord calls for repentance. The coming day of the Lord. Does your handout, by the way, I should have said there's a handout. I think you all might know that. But did you all get a handout on your way in? Um, does your handout have these three themes? Yeah. What did I say? Re, re, repentance. For, restoration for a remnant. I think I said a lot of R's there. So, um, so God's saying, usually there's sin. Usually it's like there's a, maybe a near-term judgment. There are more uh, bigger judgments to come the day of the Lord. So you, your job right now is to repent, is to turn to the Lord. Um, and I promise all these great blessings of restoration if you repent. And now to call a people to repent kind of naturally creates this category because some people are going to do it and some people aren't. Okay. 
So what that creates is this, this, uh, that, that call to do something, repent, come back to me, creates this distinction within Israel between what we could call a remnant and the rest. So you'll see this remnant theology start to arise in the minor prophets where some will respond and be the Lord's people in truth. There's kind of a distinction within Israel that's starting to be cut. Some will truly show themselves to be the Lord's people and some will not. And so there's going to be a greater judgment to come on those who don't. There will be restoration for those who do. And now these are arrows that we see pointing forward that the New Testament is going to pick up these categories and develop, develop them further. I think of a place like Romans 9 where Paul is wrestling with, what do we do with the fact that Israel has by and large rejected the Messiah? Is this like this crisis of faith? Like is God, what about all these promises? What about the covenants? He, it says at the beginning of Romans 9, has God failed his promises? And he, he answers by saying no because it was never all who were genealogically of Israel who was the real Israel. There was always a a, a spiritual people within the, the national ethnic people that's the real Israel. Well, that theology actually, Paul didn't just invent that. That starts to come out of, maybe it doesn't start in the minor prophets, but it really starts to become more prominent with this idea of a remnant emerging from the minor prophets, that there is a remnant, there is a, there is a subset that will respond and, and show themselves to be true Israel, so to speak. Um, so those three big themes, the background of the law and covenant, the day of the Lord and how that relates to kind of more historical events and judgments and then the remnant and restoration for the repentant remnant. Sorry, that's just too much alliteration. Uh, this isn't the sermon. I can't alliterate that much. Um, any questions or thoughts about those themes or other things you might know about the minor prophets? Yeah. Yeah. Um, keep mentioning them as the minor prophets. Yeah. I don't imagine they're less important, but what's the distinction between yeah, the major that's, and the That's a great question. I should have said that. Yeah, they're not minor because of importance. They're minor because of length. It's, it, they're just short. They're, they're shorter than the. Think of how Isaiah 66 chapters, Jeremiah 52 long chapters. The longest of these are 14 Hosea, and I think it's still shorter than Daniel's 12 chapters. So it's just length. Uh, you know, these range from. I think they're all more than one. I think two to 14 chapters. A couple of them are two chapters. Obadiah is only one. Okay. Haggai is two. So Abadai is one. So they range from one to 14 chapters. They're pretty short. Um, I think altogether they're roughly the length, kind of equivalent to one of the, the longer, like Ezekiel or Isaiah. Oh, yeah, chapters, just text. Yeah, the, the years, yeah, they're all over the place in time. Um, yeah, there, there's some that are, they tend to, as a whole, they tend to be a little later. So the earlier ones are generally contemporary with like Isaiah as some of the earliest writing prophets. But some of these guys are writing after the return from exile. Um, so that's the latest. I mean, the latest books written, the latest book written is Malachi, which is one of the minor prophets. So. Yeah, good question. Great. Now, it's funny whenever we learn these big, these big picture kind of forest level things are helpful, but then you get into the trees and you see there's always more complexity and everything I just said, you know, you're going to see a lot more diversity from book to book, but it is kind of helpful to zoom out and say, what, what's this whole part of the Bible kind of doing as a whole? Uh, so we're going to just look through each of these three, Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Um, we don't totally know why the order is the way it is. Again, there's a diversity of orders you'll find in different manuscripts. It's, it's somewhat chronological, maybe. It's not like airtight chronological, but these earlier ones tend to, in the 12, tend to be early. And then again, it ends with post-exile um, 
Zechariah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three, those are all after the exile. So there's maybe a broadly chronological ordering. Um, so we're going to start with Hosea. So we're going to read from, from several places in Hosea. So if you have a Bible, I would recommend you turn there. Um, Hosea tells us when he ministered in, in chapter 1, verse 1. tells us the kings of Israel and, and Judah, whose reigns coincided with his ministry. If you look at this on the calendar, it's from about 750 to 715 B.C. Um, so again, he's one of the earliest writing prophets. Other contemporaries would be Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. And this is a period in Israel's history that both kingdoms were doing really well materially. They were both doing well in terms of expansion of territory and uh, financially. These, these were good times from kind of a worldly uh, point of view. He is mostly addressing the northern kingdom. And by the way, if you're reading the prophets, it can be a little tricky if you don't, if you don't understand that often they'll, say, they'll talk about Ephraim. Ephraim this, Ephraim that. And if you think, well, Ephraim was one of the tribes. Why is he singling out? Like, why is there so much uh, um, calling out Ephraim all the time? Well, that, that's often in the prophets, that's shorthand for the whole northern kingdom. It was the largest of the tribes that split away from Judah. So often there will be Judah addressed and Ephraim addressed. Well, that Ephraim is sort of a way of talking about the whole northern kingdom. So there's a lot of that Ephraim talk in Hosea. Sometimes Judah's addressed. And I think what Seth was alluding to earlier is it's a poignant book with its imagery. The most distinctive feature of Hosea is this dramatic symbolism that we see in the first three chapters, how the Lord tells the prophet Hosea. It just says there right there in one, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's a jarring word used three times in one verse, and we're like, whoa. And he does this. He is to find a wife who is probably a prostitute, has that background, and, uh, and the way that their relationship goes, and then they have kids, and they name their kids very highly symbolic things, not my people and no mercy. Imagine having that name. Um, those are all symbol, symbolic for what the Lord is telling Israel about themselves and how he relates to them. That's, that's the first three chapters kind of filled with that, and then the, the chapters 4 to 14 are just kind of more expanding on that, on that prophetic message. Um, but, but essentially the idea is that Israel's sin is like adultery against the Lord. It's, it's that gross. It's that heinous. It's that tragic. It's a very emotional picture. It's like, oh, this is so sad that the people would do this to God. Um, and yet, and so there's a sense on the one end of rejection from him because you've been so unfaithful. But then there's another sense of promising, holding out hope for future restoration and yet, yet again uh, receiving his, his impure bride. So we'll just go through some of these major categories. I kind of have laid out questions um, to kind of walk us through. So first of all, just the sense of what's going on in Israel. Um, spiritual adultery is happening in Israel. Can someone read? Uh, can I have a few readers for this section B? Um, I need four readers. So uh, Jeff, would you read two verses two to five? Matt Boyd, would you read four verses one, six, and 14? <laughs> And then someone else to read uh, 12, verses 7 and 8. Who got that? 12, 7 and 8. Oh, yeah, Tyler, thanks. You're, you're so small, Tyler. I didn't see your hand up there. Um, and then finally, 6, verses 6 and 7. Yeah, Cindy, thank you. 
So um, the first thing Jeff's going to read is about their spiritual adultery. That's kind of the major thing that's going on with their sin. Two to five. Yeah. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she, has she who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to go on and talk about his response to that. But this is sort of a description of their, their sin. They have, they have been unfaithful. They have been um, like a wanton uh, woman that, that's going after these different lovers and wanting, wanting uh, kind of profit from them. And, he, and that's how he characterizes their sin primarily of idolatry, of seeking other gods uh, and being unfaithful to, to their covenant with him. Part of, part of, if you break this apart, of what's their sin look like, part of, part of what you see is that he, he says a few times that they don't know him. There's no knowledge of God. That's a big problem. So that's a, the, the verses Matt has out of chapter 4, verses 1, 6, and 14, talking about that problem, not knowing the Lord. Uh, for the, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Mm. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you for being a uh, priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I, will, I also will forget your children. Verse 14, mm -hmm. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside and prostitutes and sacrifice and cult prostitutes. And the people without understanding shall come to ruin. This theme of they don't have knowledge of understanding. Verse, uh, that, that one that, the first one of those that Matt read, I think is so interesting that there is no faithfulness or steadfast love. Those are two attributes God is always ascribing to himself in a covenant context. It comes from Exodus 34, verse 7, when he, he reveals his glory to Moses and says, The Lord, the Lord, uh, full of steadfast love and mercy. And it's interesting that he's saying, They don't know me, and so they don't have steadfast love and mercy. Like, marriage, there's a mutuality implied in a marriage relationship. And he's saying, like, I've been faithful. I've loved my people faithfully. But it's not being reciprocated. They don't know me. They don't know my character, and they don't, they don't reciprocate my steadfast love and faithfulness back to me. So there's an ignorance of God. Uh, there's, there's sin against fellow man. So I talked to, again earlier about the second table of the commandments. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, there's swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, committing adultery. So just people sinning against each other. They don't know the Lord, and so of course they're going to sin against each other in these heinous ways that should not characterize the people of God. Um, who had, was it Tyler that had 12, 7 to 8? He talks in a few places about the dangers of prosperity. Again, these are probably good times, like materially for the people. And so there's places where he says, like, your, your, your riches are basically causing you to be proud and pulling you away from me. So you read that, Tyler? Yeah. A merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all, the la in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. 
Yeah, so there's this sort of, there's sort of perception of safety and wealth and saying, like, no one can find my sin in my wealth. That reminds me of uh, one of the, I think, the letter to Laodicea, where they say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. And uh, he says, you know, you're basically that, that pride in your, in your possessions is, is undoing you. Um, I think maybe the, the, the best, clearest place to describe the, the failure, their failure of the covenant and what the Lord did in setting them up as his people of the covenant and what they've done in failing is in chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. So was it Cindy that had that? Chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Mm-hmm. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faith, faithlessly with me. There's a lot of theology in those two verses, but this idea of in, in making a covenant with you, I wasn't after your sheep and your goats. And your, you know, I, I, don't, I don't just want, and we talk about this in the context of the great commandment of loving the Lord your God which is more than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings, saying, my, my whole design in creating a covenant was that, a, that I would call a people to myself. I would pour out my steadfast love and faithfulness on you in the covenant, and you would respond in steadfast love to me, and you would be my a kingdom of priests, and you would live for me and, and display me to the world. But you have transgressed. You have rebelled against that covenant. You have not responded in steadfast love to me. You don't know me. You haven't responded... Uh, showing that you've you've come to know me at all, um, and maybe there's a sense there that well they've gone on and given their sacrifices, but uh, they've missed the point. They've missed the heart of the of, of the covenant and the law. So that's the sort of diagnosis um, of of Israel. And then what's God's response? Uh, the first thing is that they uh, is a sense of abandoning them, like an adulterous wife. We had uh, Jeff read two. Um, Two to five. I think if we read verses six to thirteen, would someone? It's kind of long, but would someone read six to thirteen of chapter two? This is God's response. Given your spiritual adultery, here's my response to you. Uh, would someone be willing to read that? So two verses uh, six to thirteen. Tyler, yep. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take, my wool, take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said... These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry. 
and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So there's this this really sad picture of finding, you know, if she's so so um, unresponsive to my gifts and to my love, I'm going to withdraw those things. I'm going to withdraw uh, my my grain and so on. Um, so there's that there's that abandonment, that withdrawal. Um, he makes the point elsewhere, and we already read chapter six, verse six a moment ago, that kind of this idea that the the law is not going to help you. The law is not going to going to fix this problem. Again, it's like we have these burnt offerings and sacrifices, but it it, it hasn't penetrated to the heart, and so it's like your your legal ceremonies aren't going to help. Um, he he later gets more specific. In chapter 11, verses 5 to 7, he talks about Assyria as the way that he will judge. He's threatening judgment. Um, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Um, and he goes on to talk about, about that, um, that conquest. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call it to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. Um, so he's going to use Assyria as a conquering uh, force against them. This, of course, does happen in the northern kingdom. We've talked about this before in, in 722. They finally uh, take the northern kingdom into exile and conquer them. Um, so that's, that's the situation. None of this is too new to us as we've read the prophets up to this point. There is a kind of a subplot of this question of uh, maybe Israel can find help from other nations. Um, there seems to be evidence that they were trying to do that. In chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, uh, it says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wounds, so this is both kingdoms, north and south, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and none shall rescue. So there's this idea of uh, seeking to make peace with human kingdoms, seeking alliances, um, instead of doubling down on faithfulness to the Lord in view of the dangers from outside. It's like, let's go and kind of play the, the geopolitics the diplomacy game. And there was a lot of that going on between the two king, northern and southern kingdoms. Um, they were making alliances with Egypt. Some of them were afraid of Assyria, so they'd make an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. And then it was really messy. And Isaiah does this too, kind of critiquing that like you're it's just faithlessness this is not um this is not what you do when you're trusting the lord going to these pagan nations and seeking alliances so there's this question of is that going to help them and uh god's answer is no he's going to make it futile if you look at the next verse 515 after he described like going going to assyria sending to the great king he says i will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me um, well, he even said in 14, I will tear um, and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I think it's so interesting that he's essentially saying that will be futile. Your, your attempt to seek other kings and other nations' power will be futile um, until in their distress they earnestly seek me. You see, that's the problem. It's like you're earnestly seeking others in your distress, and I'm going to make it fail so that you earnestly seek me to be your savior. So that's, a, that's, that's what God says about this sort of, can we get help from other nations? Well, the problem ultimately is not their lack of political or military power. Their problem is their, their unfaithfulness. So the, the, there will be no end around to that in terms of solving the problem. They have to deal with God. Which brings us to this point E, what will truly solve the problem? And the answer is repentance. Um, can I have 
um, someone read chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, and someone else read chapter 14, verses 4 to 7. So 1 to 3 talks about repentance, and 4 to 7 talks about what God will do to restore in, in response to their repentance. So uh, Lori, 1 to 3, and Jeff, uh, 4 to 7. Thank you. Turn, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, Our God, to the works of our hands. And you, the orphan, do you see how they're what, what the way he describes this is what they're going to say when they repent and you see how they're they're repudiating all their kind of sinful things they're saying we're not we're not going to go to Assyria for salvation they're repudiating that that's what repentance will look like they will say we're not doing that anymore and then we will not ride on horses I think the idea just being we're not going to rely on military might that's not going to be our salvation and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands so no more of that spiritual adultery. All those, all those the, the kind of the, the um, things in the early chapters about a wife who's a, a whore and is unfaithful and all this stuff. It's like we're, we're done with that. We're not worshiping the, the gods of our own hands. We have one. We're going to be faithful to our one covenant Lord. So it's essentially repentance that rolls back and repudiates and says no to everything that was, was wrong with their sin. And then here's God's response in, in, Hosea, in, in verses 4 to 7. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His <coughs> shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. That's beautiful, isn't it? Um, a lot of the, these books end that way. It's like, here's, okay, here's how it will go. And it's, it's, it's like, there's this picture of just, I want that. You know, like the people, isn't, wouldn't it be good to know the Lord that way, for him to, to be our, for us to be his people and for him to be our God in that way. Another beautiful passage of restoration. And they're all kind of mixed in. It's like your sin and my abandonment, but then my restoration. It's all kind of mixed in throughout the book. Is um, chapter 11, verses uh, 8 to 11. And I think we read um, like up to, or I don't know if we read 11.7. My people are bent on turning away from me. They call it to the most high. I will not raise them up at all. So it's like, it's like uh, judgment and abandonment. But then verse 8, this pivot. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Uh, my heart, I think those are other places that have received his judgment. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, I will, and I will not come in wrath. And that is, in verse 9, the Holy One in your midst, therefore I will come in salvation and not in wrath. We think of holiness as like, because God is holy, he's going to burn like a fire and destroy but holiness, what does holiness mean? Set apart. He's, I'm different than you. It's what he's saying. Was, I'm holy. I'm other. I'm different than you. And he's holy in everything God is. He's holy. Holiness doesn't just mean wrath and judgment. 
It also means I'm different than you in the kind of love that I have. I'm different than you in mercy. And so in this context, it's his holiness that causes him to be so counterintuitively merciful. Saying, how could I, like, even as bad as you've been, I'm not like you. I'm not like a human husband. And I yet will still have mercy. I'll still uh, keep you as my own. So that's something to think about, holiness of God. It's not just fire. It's also mercy. It's everything that God is. He's holy. He's, he's other. He's beyond. He's transcendent. So, um, so that's Hosea. Now, what does Hosea contribute to the 12? I, we've talked about right, this picture of the motif of spiritual adultery and the whole thing with Hosea's wife. Um, that's a very, a very um, I like that, poignant picture that Seth said. Um, and it uses this marriage motif for, for the Lord in Israel. That's a picture that gets, um, it both explains the nature of sin and it explains the nature of redemption, right? Um, it explains what the stakes are with regard to sin and it, and it explains that what kind of love is at work in redemption. And of course, we who know the New Testament are thinking this anticipates the Christ and church relationship, which is really the anti-type, really the thing, the, the final thing to which this was pointing back in, over later in Ephesians 5 verses 25 to 32 where Paul says uh, this marriage this mystery is great it refers to Christ and the church uh, so we the church know Christ as, as a bridegroom in a similar way so that love so that kind of marital love is appropriate um, for us in our, in our knowledge of Christ as the church so any questions or thoughts about Hosea yeah Randy nations help. That's throughout the Old Testament. Yeah. Every time they did something they weren't supposed to do, God let them know. Yeah, that's a common uh, it's a common response. When they sin, God gives them door B stuff of covenant curse and they they see we're vulnerable and then the first impulse is let's go get help from other men. Let's get horses, let's get chariots, let's get alliances. That's a very common impulse. It's, it's, it's continuing ungodliness, right? It's like ungodliness caused the problem, and then this is an ungodly response to the problem. And God, it's very clear that that's, that's, not, that's not the solution. It's not repentance. So, yeah, that's a big motif in the Old Testament. Yeah, Patty. When's this happening? When's what happening? The return to the Lord. And return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. They haven't, have they? Um, I, I'll refer. They have. When's this happening? Uh, return to the Lord. Yeah, I'll refer you to. I think the the best answer we can give to this is Paul's whole argument in Romans nine through eleven, and to give super. It's a complex passage. He's super like high level. I think Paul gives a two part answer to that. His first part is is basically what he's saying in chapter nine, which is. It's not all who are ethnic Israel, descended from Abraham, who are the true spiritual Israel. It's the people elect. It's the people of faith. That's what the patriarchs and their, you know, the subsequent generations proves that, especially 9-6 of Romans. But the whole argument there, it's election, it's faith. But then in chapter 11, he does, I believe, promise, yes, um, there have been, there's been a lot of, of ethnic Israelites who have, who have been removed from this stock, this olive tree, because they haven't had faith and there have been Gentiles grafted into it but there will be many someday grafted back into to their natural stock and I do believe he's promising there's controversy I, I think it's I think he, it's I read it as he is promising that there will be a at someday in the future a conversion of, of many or all of, of uh, ethnic Israel um, 
But I think what's important in making that first move that he makes is that however you slice it, there's a remnant. Not all of, not every natural son of Abraham is saved, right? Like even in Jesus, like many generations have gone by where many Jews have not been saved. Many people in Jesus' day rejected him. And they, if, if many Jews are converted in some future day, well, that won't include Jesus' generation, right? So many generations have gone by. So Paul has to make this point of it's not ethnicity that makes you the people of God. It's faith. It's being chosen uh, by God really in, in eternity, but it, it, it works itself out in, in faith. And that, and that, because that's how you become the people of God, that means Jew and Gentile. That's kind of the big point in chapter 10 of Romans. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. So that's a very brief answer. I don't know if it helps, but it could be another series. <laughs> Um, let's talk about Joel. Um, Joel, we, we know very little about Joel in terms of dating and circumstances. It's kind of a book kind of, <laughs> kind of floating out there. There's not a lot of like historical specificity in terms of references. All we know is Joel, the son of Pethuel. And um, I love Old Testament scholars. I mean, some of them are great, but so they, they tend to really read into details and be like, hey, he talks about priests a couple of times. He must have been a priest. You know, it's like some, there's a lot of, a lot of building on very thin foundations sometimes with trying to figure out details about the background of these books. We don't really know much. Um, proposals about dating have ranged all the way from the 9th century BC, that this is like the first prophetic book, all the way to after exile. It's like one of the last, which goes, goes to show you there's very little we have to kind of hitch it to in terms of history. Um, perhaps someone suggested that that's a product of perhaps it was written to function as kind of a community lament that could be reused in various times of disaster. And I thought, uh, that's kind of a compelling thought. We don't know, you know, we don't know if there's potentially these books were used in various ways, but it could be that it was kind of meant to sound timeless because it was sort of meant to, um, it, it, it certainly happens, there's a particular occasion, which is a locust swarm, a locust invasion, but it's, that kind of thing happened not infrequently throughout Israel's history. It's not like there's this big one moment. It's like, this could be relevant at various times. So it may have been written in a way that it could be sort of reused in times of national tragedy. We don't know. Um, but yeah, it is, it is given on the occasion of a devastating locust swarm. Chapter 1 basically describes a locust swarm that just happened. Chapter 2 kind of pivots and uses that as a, as a metaphor, as an extended metaphor, uses locusts as an extended metaphor for the day of the Lord. And it seems like he's, he's threatening, like, if you don't repent, there will be more stuff like this. And it's almost, it uses imagery like an army. But he, it's similes. It's like an army. So he's probably not talking about a real human army. He's probably talking about more locusts, but they're, 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 they're almost like an invading army that's supposed to make us think about worse future judgments in the day of the Lord. Um, but again, it's that interplay between what's happening now. There's historical events. There's disaster. And the Lord is using that, leveraging that, and saying, Get ready for the future and what's coming in view of what, what just happened. Um, so again, the day of the Lord looms large in Joel as uh, let's, let's, get, let's set the people's attention on this future day of judgment by means of current events. So um, let's, let's look at this, uh, this point, this big point that judgment is coming on a future day of the Lord. This is be in your handout. Um, he talks about this a lot in chapter. I'm kind of working backwards a little bit. So it's sort of like, he goes from locust to the day of the Lord. That's kind of the arc of, of the book. 
So we can kind of start by saying, okay, logically, what's happening? God, there's sin, there, there's judgment coming. So in chapter 3, God talks a lot about that judgment to come, the day of the Lord. Um, it's, it's really all like 3 verses 1 to 16 is all about that. Um, like I'll just read a little bit in verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Um, so it's against all the nations. In some ways, it's against the other nations for their sin against Israel and Judah. That's another theme in the prophets. Um, but then they're included too in, in the judgment. Um, and so the day of the Lord is coming. And that, you know, the, the, the thing that the locust is so vivid about, about doing is showing. What do locusts do? We don't have them in our, I don't know why. We, we figured it out, I guess. We don't have locusts. They don't swarm through the Central Valley and eat all the crops, all the almond crops they what they devour yeah there's this big cloud this big massive swarm of grasshopper like insects and they come and they they just uh they eat everything they 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 clear the place of any life and vegetation and if you're an agrarian society this is devastating this is like your whole year of of supply that can just get um completely taken out from under you um, and it's sort of like a, a decreation, an uncreation. And that kind of language is intentional throughout Joel because if you think about the big biblical storyline of God creates uh, a world that falls into sin and by means of redemption and judgment, he's bringing about a new creation. That's the Bible in like very, very large pictures. So he uses the decreation of the locust as kind of as like, this is what judgment will be. I'm going to come and kind of uncreate in order to recreate in order to make a new creation. So the locusts are kind of helpful metaphorically that way. Um, for instance, chapter 2, verse 3, uh, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. So think of it like it's like a wildfire, right? It, it just it, it consumes everything in its path. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So it's like the de-Edening of the world, <laughs> is what the locusts do. And, and chapter 1 has a lot of this, of this like description of the kind of the ruin of, of the kind of physical and, and the, the vegetation life. Like verse 4 of chapter 1, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. I don't know what, those are all just waves of locusts. I don't know if they're different kinds or whatever. But it's just like everything's getting cleared out, right? That's kind of the picture. You have similarly a judgment described in kind of apocalyptic terms. And what I mean is these sort of otherworldly images that kind of show heaven is breaking into earth. So chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. Um, this is a very important passage, as we'll return to it in a moment. But he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There's a day of the Lord. And he's describing it as like this cosmos-shaking event where like uh, everything gets upended and like, like the earth, uh, you know, the things that we can rely on, the moon, the sun, everything's being disrupted. It's, it's like heaven is, is tearing into earth and causing this massive disruption, um, that kind of imagery for judgment. Um, but it yields a new creation. There are promises of deliverance and restoration. Would someone read chapter 2, verses 13 and 14? Actually, start, start with 12. 
12 talks about their repentance, and then 13 and 14. Yeah, Matt. Even now declare the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Thank you. So, familiar now? Repent, the Lord will restore. Um, Again, um, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, where does that come from? Slow to anger, abounding in, in steadfast love, merciful and gracious. Anyone remember where that comes from? Moses in uh, Exodus 34, when he reveals himself to Moses. So, he, again, he's reaching for covenant language about himself and saying, I'm still this God. I'm still gracious. I still respond. And it's interesting that in view of the locusts and how they destroyed crops and food, he's saying the Lord will, will, will leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering, which implies you'll have enough again and you'll have enough to worship me with. So it's sort of like there will be, there will be a reversal of this, this devastated condition. Um, there's, there's, a, there's in chapter 3, verses 16 to 21, it's kind of similar. We read at the end of Hosea, this sort of like, oh, the crops will be great. It'll be fruitful. It's similar at the end of Joel. We won't read it all, but um, we hear in verse 16, uh, the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And then end of 17, uh, you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through it. And then we have the mountains dripping with sweet wine, the hills flowing with milk. It's again, the same kind of agricultural abundance covenant blessing you you know you chose door a um people who chose door b will be redeemed and receive the blessings as though they went through door a uh, of the covenant blessing and curse um so it's a recreation right it's like things will be good again in in the created order that's the imagery that's used and and one other important element of that is um when you think biblically about how does the bible signal god's recreation work that's coming so you have this agricultural imagery. You also have this a huge theme of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is so often promised, especially in the prophets, is like this is a signal of God's recreation that's to come when he redeems. And Joel has one of the clearest promises of the Holy Spirit in all of the Old Testament prophets. Um, verses 20, uh, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. And then he gives those apocalyptic sun not shining and moon turning to blood. Now, does anyone know where that, that, those verses about the spirit being poured out, where does that come up later in the Bible? Yeah, David. Peter at Pentecost. So, so on the day of Pentecost, when God indeed pours out his Holy Spirit on the church, uh, Peter interprets what's happening with Joel 2 and says, this is happening. The, the Lord is pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And the emphasis here is the kind of the, the, the equality with which it's not just a special anointed officers. It's all the people of God receive the Holy Spirit. And in, in kind of biblical uh, terminology and symbolism, what this means is the last days are here, which is why uh, this sort of wonders in heaven and so on. Peter quotes that too. He's saying it's the end. The end has come. How do we know the end has come? The Holy Spirit is here. Uh, the, the, the spirit of the new creation is here in the church. Now here, now we know now that the, the end has begun, but the end hasn't 
ended, <laughs> right? So uh, the end has begun in the resurrection of Christ, the spirit being poured out, and we're like, oh, we're in this era where it's called the last days, but God's purposes are certainly not done yet, right? Christ is yet to come again and, and complete. We're in sort of a in-between phase. The end has begun, but the end has not ended. Um, but, but the spirit... Joel is one of those places that shows us how to think about Pentecost when we get to Acts 2 and going, the spirit coming is like, it's the end. It's the, it's the Lord fulfilling his purposes for the future. That's, what is, that's, that's how Peter thinks. That's how we're supposed to think. Um, and so, yeah, I've already talked about this, this theme of the locust swarm preparing Israel for coming judgment. And again, this idea of what's happening now in history is supposed to uh, get us ready for the day of the Lord, what's coming later. Um, and so uh, I already kind of covered that. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 does that really, really helpfully showing, like this is a picture of what's to come. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. He's talking about the locusts that have just come, and he says, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. Um, this is a good, by the way, this is a good way to think about disaster. Sometimes when, when bad things happen in the news, natural disaster or wars that are really devastating and confusing, we're kind of dealing with some of that in the world right now and potentially more to come. Um, one good way to think about that is instead of just necessarily going, where are we on the timeline of, of like prophecy, um, I'm not sure that the details we've been given are clear enough to, to be able to do that. But what is helpful is to let let disasters and judgments that are happening real time throughout history make us think about the greater one to come that that kind of arc of thinking from this thing bad thing happening now how can this may help us think about what god said he will do when christ returns and there is a judgment and there is both destruction and salvation in some ways any disaster can be a useful conduit for our hearts to think about that and to respond rightly and what should israel do in response is they should they should be sorrowful uh, he, he says that they should uh, repent with weeping and mourning in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, in view of the, the locusts that have come. Repent with we, weeping and mourning and turn to him. And once again, it should be no surprise that he will restore. Uh, when we talked about the remnant. The remnant theology is here, chapter 2, verse 32, where he, he, he talks about, um, let's see, where is that? It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors, there shall be those whom the Lord calls. You see that remnant. And the remnant is defined by doing what? Who are the people that, through all these judgments, who, who, who are the people of God? Who endure as the people of God? What do they, what do, they do? They stay faithful. What, what, is it, what does it in verse 32 say that they do? Who are saved? Those who call on the name of the Lord. It's faith. And that's the point uh, Paul draws on in Romans 10. I talk about Romans 9 through 11. Romans 10, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew and Gentile, actually, is, is the expansion of that point. Uh, so, again, there's a there's distinction among Israel between the remnant and the rest. And it's calling on the name of the Lord that both for Israel and the nations is the way to be saved. Um, so that's that's Joel. Um, any, any questions or thoughts about, about these things in Joel? You can see there's a lot of overlap thematically with, with Hosea. Any thoughts? Anything that was unclear? Let's talk about Amos, um, the last of our books. 
Amos was, was an outsider. Amos was a shepherd from Judah. It's interesting. He's a shepherd. He comes from Tekoa, which is in Judah. But he mostly ministers in the north. He comes up to the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and again, he's an 8th century guy, contemporary with Hosea, with, with uh, Isaiah. And um, so he's a, it's interesting. He's a shepherd, and metaphors of sheep and also of lions seem to come up a lot. I think it's kind of interesting that as a shepherd, he's, he uses lion, lion and sheep imagery a lot in his prophecies. Um, right there in verse 2 of chapter 1, the Lord roars from Zion. Um, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So you're right. This is something written by a shepherd. Um, and again, I'll, I'll point out, this is prosperous times for both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so Amos, Amos is kind of particular slant, uh, distinctive, is that there's a big emphasis on um, injustice among people. So we could call like social injustice or social justice without some of the more modern baggage of debates over what that means. But essentially justice in its administration among society, among people. Uh, and, and that's a big thing. There's not as much about idolatry, the vertical dimension. Hosea is very big on the vertical dimension of their sin, the first table, so to speak, of the law. Amos, there's a lot of each other. And what's happening is because these are prosperous times, um, there, is, there is a big epidemic of oppression and unrighteousness and the, the rich um, abusing the poor in Israel. And so a lot, of, a lot of the prophecies in Amos is going after that. Um, again, in the shadow of Assyria's frightening rise to come in the future. So that comes up a little bit, Assyria coming. So again, we have pronouncements of judgment. Can someone read uh, Amos 3, 1 to 2? And someone else be ready to read chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. So Matt Boyd, yeah, 3, 1 to 2. This uh, word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Thank you. So uh, very clear declaration of their punishment. About 2, 6 to 8. This is one of the many places where their sins of like pride and injustice and oppression uh, is, is, is identified. So would, would someone read 2, 6 to 8? Yeah, Chinway, thanks. For three transgressions of Israel and four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those whom they have, have been fined. So you see there's a big emphasis on sins against one another, sins in society, uh, sins of oppression, the wicked, um, assailing the righteous. Um, that comes up a lot. Uh, the Lord, it's interesting that I think um, in view of that kind of sin, what the Lord needs to put his finger on to really address it is how transcendent he is, how much greater he is than the human who are the human great, so to speak. Um, so, so he promises, I'm coming in judgment, and essentially, like, I'm bigger and badder than you. <laughs> so, uh, in chapter 9, verses 2 to 6, I won't read it all, but um, he, he kind of talks about his transcendence. Like, I'm there wherever you go. If they dig to Sheol, 
from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I'll bring them down. Kind of sounds like Psalm 139, but it's not quite the same comforting. Like, God, you're always with me. It's like, you can't get away from me. You go down to the grave, I'm there. You go to the heights, I'm there. Hide themselves on, the, on Carmel, the mountain. Nope, can't get away from me. Bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent. Like, you can't get away from me. I'm the transcendent God. You may have power over other people. You may have wealth. You may, you may fool yourself into thinking you can get away with this evil. But I am... I'm the I am. I'm the transcendent God, the Lord, the Lord God of hosts. Verse five, who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. Um, so that's kind of the, the the answer they need is to be reminded of who God is um, and the, the God that they violated in their sin against one another. Um, God speaks through His shepherd prophet. We talked a little bit about Amos as a, a shepherd who prophesies. There's future prediction. There's a there's an attempt in chapter seven, verses ten to seventeen, for others to silence Amos. Uh, but they will not succeed because he's speaking the Lord's word. Um, they say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. And uh, so they tell, you know, they tell him, don't prophesy against us. And the Lord has hard things to say there against them for not wanting to hear his word. And one thing that's really scary, uh, this is a kind of famous verse in Amos 9:11, is part of God's judgment against the people will be that he withdraws the prophetic word from them. So, God's word is a means of judgment, but it's almost like what's even scarier is God not giving his word. So in in chapter uh, 8, verse 11, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And this reminds us of back in Hosea when he kept saying, your problem is you don't know the Lord. You don't know the Lord. It's like, well, you're going to keep not knowing the Lord because you're not going to hear his word. You're not going to hear from him. The prophets are a means of rescue. They're a gracious act of God, right? We have a disobedient people. It'd be great if the prophets weren't necessary, if the law was enough. You know, if they just kept the law, they wouldn't need the prophets. But given that they need the prophets, the prophets are a great gift from God. And, uh, and if they reject that, they're going to hear nothing. Uh, so that's a, that's a sobering thought about how we, how we respond to God's word, that uh, part of, part of the, there's a hardening. I mean, it's not like we're going to wake up and we don't have any Bibles or any access to Bibles, probably. But it's more internal that God could harden us. If we reject his word, he could work, he could harden us so that we can become less and less responsive. Yeah. Or to the testament period when there was no prophet. Yeah, there was hundreds of years of no prophecy. Yeah, yeah, the priesthood has gone completely rogue, and there are no prophets. Just in that 400 years Mm -hmm. waiting for Christ, we don't hear from God, but we see Him working Mm -hmm. through that time. Good point. This was not an idle threat. You have hundreds of years of prophetic silence before the coming of Christ. That's right. Um. And uh, we, we see places where God's judgment is described as being intended to bring about repentance. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 13 is, I won't read it all, but this is a good place for this. Um, he says in verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. And that sounds to us great, like clean teeth, man. My dentist would love me if, if I had cleanness of teeth. He's not, <laughs> what's he describing when he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth? He's not saying good dental hygiene. No food, like it's good to have dirty teeth because it means you had something to eat, right? So I will give you no food, a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. 
Yet, yet you did not return to me. I judged you. I, I, I disciplined you, and it was supposed to bring you back, but it didn't have that effect. And all through verse 13, he's doing that. I struck you with blight and mildew, yet you did not return to me, and so on. Um, so judgment is, in the near term, is supposed to bring them back, bring them to repent so they can receive the blessings that he has. Again, that the door B, covenant blessings, rather than covenant curses. Um, the outcome of these judgments, again, we have the, the day of the Lord in uh, overshadowing uh, the text that these near-term, near-term judgments that point to the, the long-term judgment of the day of the Lord. Chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Uh, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is a darkness and not a light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Now, the day of the Lord is good for the righteous. It's a day of reward. It's a day of uh, recompense for the righteous. But I think what he's doing is saying, be careful what you want. Do you want the Lord to come and act? Are you ready for that? How is how's it going to hit you if you're unrighteous? It's a like heart check. If you're failing the covenant, if you're sinning against one another, that will not be a good day for you uh, when he comes. And so that, that, again, that's kind of an evergreen, timeless warning of going, the, the, the human heart longing for justice and hopefully having a God word. When's God going to come and make things right? That's a good godly desire. But it's also a good question of, am I ready for that? Uh, how would that day of judgment hit me? Of course, it's not our own works. It's going to be our confidence of our standing there. It's that we're, in the, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ um, that we can say, we should say, come soon, Lord Jesus. We want the day of the Lord to come, but with, with trembling, knowing that's a scary time for the wicked. Um, so, so the day of the Lord is in view. Again, we have a remnant. Chapter 5, verse 15. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Um, so there's, there's a remnant there. Um, also, the end of Amos is very important. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of identifying sin. At the very end, chapter 9, there's this beautiful picture of a restoration. They all, all three of these books, they end on a really beautiful note of restoration, right? Some, some picture of what God's going to do for his people. And verse 11, um, he says, In that day I will raise up... Um, well, he had just talked about judgment, right? So in the, in, in, on the, in the wake of judgment... In that day I will raise up in the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. I think that means that the crops, the yields will be very good <laughs> because... I'm no farmer, but I think that means the yields will be very good because then it says, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So this is good. This is, again, the agricultural plenty as a picture of, of blessing. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, plant vineyards, drink their wine, make gardens and eat fruit. I'll plant them in the land. They'll never be uprooted. Um, so it's a Davidic restoration in that, that has the fruit of covenant and Edenic blessings. This, all this, by the way, this covenant blessing language is supposed to evoke Eden, this idyllic place of God's presence and blessing. These are all connected throughout the whole Bible. Um, and it begins with Israel, but it reaches to all the nations who are called by my name. 
So again, that, that idea of the, the remnant, the response of repentance of the remnant, but then that calling on the name of the Lord being the way that all the nations will actually receive the same blessings, that, that is right there in the minor prophets. Again, these things are just amplified and clarified in the New Testament. But that's, um, that's the future uh, that, that, that Amos points to. That promise of restoring the ruins of the, the booth of David that's fallen, that gets quoted in Acts 15. When the church is deliberating, what do we do about Gentiles who are coming to Christ? They have this big problem of, are they, are they with us? Do they, get, do they count? And they remember this, this passage and how all who are called by my name. And so they say, yeah, the Gentiles are a part of us, uh, the Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. So, again, there's a sense of it is Israel's restoration, but it's, it, it, it blossoms into including all the nations, um, which is good news for us. Um, so any, uh, any questions or, or comments about Amos? At this point, the three of the books are probably all kind of like, which one was which, right? It can, it can be that way. Keep reading them and to kind of getting a feel for each one individually. But any, um, any closing thoughts about this book or questions? Yeah, Patty. I've, I'm reluctant to ask this because I think it reveals a lot of ignorance on my part. But reading these, mm-hmm. I'm, it's so much real-time stuff that's being yeah. talked about, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, whoa, Israel, come on. Why mm-hmm. didn't you hear? But I'm reading them, and I want to know how how I'm supposed to yeah. take it and have my life changed by what mm-hmm. was said to the Israelites, yeah. but is now being said to all of us. Mm-hmm. What are we, what's the take, you know? Yeah, what's, how, what's do we, how do we transition to us with this stuff? Yeah. Well... There's, there are certain points of connection that we can always, like, we are in a covenant with God, and God sometimes will discipline us in this covenant relationship to res- restore us to where we ought to be in repentance. Uh, there's a lot of parallels there. It's not the same kind of, um, you know, they're a mixed community. So this idea of a remnant within the group, that doesn't apply to, to us as a church in the same way. For some people, what he's predicting is absolute ruin, like damnation. We in the church, it's, I would say, for us, the category is discipline. Um, that he may bring a hand of discipline against us to, to bring us to respond with repentance. Um, and we just see the character of God revealed in so many ways. Like, again, that I'm the Holy One, so I'll, I'll have mercy. Um, just knowing our God and knowing his, his heart and knowing his, his covenant love. Um, that, again, sort of that Joel idea of, of looking at, at current events and going, what is this, how does this foreshadow bigger judgment to come in the day of the Lord? Um, I think that, that's an important, I mean, that's a good lesson to draw. I don't know if there's any other ideas of how, what is applicatory value of these, these books. It's a great, great question. Yeah, Jeff. Hosea has been one of my favorite writer problems as well. I think it's the faithfulness of God to just faithfully just keep coming after his people. Like, yeah. You see that throughout the whole Old Testament with the the matter of problems we talked about today, that's one of the things that, the themes that came through to me, and so it's just, it's just reinforcing just how much God loves his people. Yeah. That yeah. is super important. It's the character of God, it's the nature of his covenant love, and then also a lot of the, there's a lot of like surprising, wait God, you would still do that? After all you've said about these people, you would still uh, you know, like he says, how could I, and Jose, how could I, you know, how could I abandon my people? We need to. It really, it really builds up our sense of the cross and what Christ has done to fund that that mercy. That's all funded by Christ in, in, in the cross, of course, not against the fathers. It's it is a father's will that Christ would be the one through whom He would be that gracious to people. 
So when we see these, it's jarring. Like, they're that bad and you'd be that good to them. That helps build up in us a sense of, wow, this is, this is the surpassing value of what Christ has done in his death and resurrection. And I think just the pictures of beauty and bounty and, and his, of course, these are pointing to heaven. These are pointing in a spiritual way to what we enjoy with the spirit now in the church, but pointing the way to heavenly glory to come in very pale ways, but ways that I think really can stir up our, our affections and our imagination. So for the sake of time, I'm already over. I'll have to close in prayer. I'm sorry I took so long. Um, but I'm glad to interact over any of these things later if you want. God, thank you for your word. It's, uh, it's such a grace that you would address us, both with words of judgment, but also with words of promise and restoration. And we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the means by which you are so merciful to sinners. We pray that every soul in this room, in hearing of, of these words, would know that mercy for themselves, and we'd all grow to know you better as our God through these books. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.